0: Astrid and Jamila would like to acknowledge that this podcast was made on the lands of the Wurundjeri and the Boon Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging and we note that this sovereignty was never ceded. Hello and welcome to Anonymous Was A Woman. My name is Jamila Risby, and I'm the host of the podcast along with my dear friend Astrid Edwards. Today we're joined by Lisa Miller who has spent her life showing up, getting things done and making things happen. As a kid growing up in country Queensland, Lisa dreamed of a big life. Working as a foreign correspondent gave her that but it also meant confronting the worst that humanity can bring. Three decades as a journo witnessing tragedy had a cost. You might know Lisa now as the woman who brings you your news on ABC News Breakfast, but she is now an author in her very own right and joins us to discuss her first book, A Memoir, Daring to Fly. Lisa Miller, welcome to Anonymous Was a Woman. We are so thrilled to have you.
1: Thank you. Well, I'm a big listener of the podcast, so I'm thrilled to be here.
0: Well, we're going to quiz you on your reading skills later in the podcast, but we're going to start with your first book, which is, of course, Daring to Fly. And because your book is so freshly out, a lot of our listeners won't have had a chance to get their hands on it just yet. So, can you take me back to 1993, when you were working as a journalist and you were flying on a charter aircraft, I believe, from Townsville to central Queensland.
1: It was honestly a day like every other day because when you were the reporter in North Queensland and your patch went from the Torres Strait out to Mount Isa and down to the Sundays, if you had to get anywhere in a hurry, you would just charter a plane. And so my cameraman and I had been asked to go down to a mine in central Queensland to do what we call a pickup for 7.30, which was to go and grab an interview for another reporter. So pretty easy job. We got down there. We did the interview. Everything was fine. When we were leaving, the pilot was a bit concerned about some storms on the radar and on the journey back, he was doing a lot of moving around to avoid the storm cells and he was using a lot of jet fuel to avoid the turbulence and the the worst of the storms. At one point in the flight, he did something that I'm told a lot of pilots do generally not with paying customers on board, but it was a six-seater propeller plane. And he switched from the reserve tanks to the main tanks just to make sure he was getting every single drop of fuel. But there was an airlock in one of the tanks. And so the engines were starved of fuel. And I'm sitting in the back of the plane with my headphones on, watching the footage that we'd just filmed so I could work out what to send. And the first thing I hear is the propeller spluttering and that moment where my head jerked up and the cameraman who was in the front turned around and looked at me and that look of sort of just utter fear and the plane dropped because as soon as the propellers stopped it ain't going anywhere. I don't know and to this day I can't tell you how long that happened for. It could have only been A few seconds, what happened was that the pilot immediately went back to the other tank and we eventually landed and when we got out, he sort of mumbled, oh, sorry about that up there, and then we went home. It was scary, but I didn't think anything of it. I did not know that that moment, those few seconds in the air were going to have such an enormous impact on me, on my decisions, on my feelings, on on my relationships. <laughs> I mean, it's incredible to think of it, that that one decision by that pilot at that moment had an impact that lasted a long time.
0: So can you tell us a little bit about that impact? Because a fear of flying isn't Unusual, a huge number of people. I think they tell you that if you're on a commercial flight and you look around, one in four people, someone in your aisle is going to be actually terrified when you're on that flight. So it's quite common. But for you, that one traumatic flight started to become something that was really quite crippling moving forward.
1: Yeah, and it grew. So the next couple of days, I had to get on a plane again, and I don't remember. I sort of maybe felt a little uncomfortable but then within probably two years I started feeling really debilitated by it. And when I talk about my fear of flying, people say, oh, yeah, I've got a fear of flying. And I go, no, 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 I've got a fear of flying. If you had said, get on a plane 737 from Brisbane to Sydney on Friday, on Wednesday I would start vomiting and having diarrhoea and be incredibly irritated and angry just at the thought of it. On the morning of my honeymoon, I'm sobbing at the airport to my new husband who has planned a two month trip around Europe in Greece and Spain. And I'm sobbing saying, why are you making me do this? I mean, that was the kind of fear. And then it culminated when I was a state political reporter when I had to fly on a a very large charter flight with the Premier at the time, Rob Borbidge. And I remember thinking, oh, this is a bad day. And I was trying to walk up the steps of the plane and I was struggling and a colleague said, come on, you can do this, you can do this. Because everyone knew that I was a fearful flyer. It was kind of like, oh yeah, that's just Lisa, she's a fearful flyer. And as I'm walking towards my seat, I thought, I can't actually bend my body to sit on that seat, like my every muscle was locked. It was frozen with fear. And so I lay down on the floor of the plane and Rob Borbidge bounded up the stairs and he said, oh, g'day, you know, g'day everyone. And he looked at me lying there and just went, oh, she is really quite afraid of flying. And that was, you know, one of the peaks where I just thought, I I don't know how I go on like this because I never missed a flight. That was the thing. I forced myself to get on every plane, but the stress of it all was pretty astounding.
2: That is incredibly intense. You have a beautiful description of this fear in your memoir. I'm quoting here, you say aggressive in its possessiveness, which I thought was a really good description of a fear, of a phobia even. But I also wanted to ask, writing memoir and publishing memoir is hard. It's not a fear of flying, clearly, but how do you now feel with your story and the story of your family out
1: in the world? Well, on the... The fear of flying, I really wanted to tell that and be super honest about it because I want people to have hope that they can change things. It is not the end. That, yes, it is hard to overcome a fear, but you can do it. It is possible. If I was able to do it, you can do it. As far as talking about my family, it has made me super vulnerable There's been lovely moments about it, sitting and remembering my mum and dad who died over the last few years. It's also brought my siblings together in a way that has had them tearing their hair out because I've just constantly gone back to them about every single detail, wanting to check and double check that things were the way that I remembered them. But the most wonderful thing I think that's come out of it about writing a memoir, and it's probably because I'm a researcher at heart as a journalist, is that I've gone back and reconnected with all these people that I haven't had anything to do with for a long time. For example, the man who created the fear of flying course that cured me. I tracked him down. He's now in his late 70s. He lives in WA. I was so overcome with emotion that when he popped up on my Zoom in front of me, I just blurted out, you changed my life (laughs) because I felt so emotional and I struggled to keep the tears back. And it just confirmed for me again what a monumental thing it had been in my life and how monumental it had been to get over it. But, I mean, look, writing a memoir, wow. It's been at times joyful and sad and challenging and confronting and there was one particular chapter that no matter how many times I read it and reread it, my heart raced and I found it so harrowing that I realised I was still suffering the after effects of what that chapter deals with.
0: You've been a foreign correspondent and you've seen some pretty traumatic and difficult things in your journalism. And I, I want to get to that in a moment, but I think we need to begin at the beginning for our audience and let them get to know you as a kid first. And this kid who dreamed of being a journalist and having this big life. Tell us about growing up in country Queensland.
1: Well, it was pretty country. (laughs) The town I grew up in is called Kilkeven and the population now is about 700. I reckon it was probably a bit less when I was growing up. Mum and dad had been dairy farmers and, you know, we had... A very isolated life. You know, play dates weren't a thing. It's not like you were sort of getting driven around to catch up with friends. You'd go to school, you'd go home, and that would be the end of your social interaction. So books were really important because mum would always take us to the library on a Friday afternoon and we would get out two books plus then a visit to the shop where we'd get 20 cents worth of mixed lollies. So I always was so grateful that mum equated lollies and books as both being treats and that's then how I always considered them. I had my little playmate, Trudy, who was my sister. She was two and a half, is two and a half years younger than me because my older siblings, same parents, they're just way older than me. My eldest brother is 20 years older than me and there's a big gap. So they'd all grown up and pretty much left home by the time Trudy and I came along. So we did what Country Kids did. We had a pretty lovely existence, to be honest. We never knew what else was out there. But I had this dream about being a reporter. And it was because I think dad had gone into politics. And so I saw journalists interviewing him and thought, oh, I love this. You know, it was quite exotic. And so, I would interview members of the family, mostly Trudy, because she was always with me, and I'd hum the ABC News theme and then I'd start interviewing her and then cut her off before she could even finish her sentence. We still laugh about that. And I've most recently just found an interview that I did with my dad when I was nine and I found a machine at the ABC that could play it and so I was able to hear it which was so lovely to hear his voice again but it made me realise how patient everyone was because I'm asking him about how World War II started and then I'm going into detail I mean who was I at nine years old doing this and then I cut him off and say okay thanks Clary we'll have to leave it there That is a
2: gorgeous story. From your childhood in, you know, remote Australia, remote Queensland, you... Then, you know, because your father went into politics and he was a conservative MP, you did get this intro into, you know, what the press gallery looked like and felt like and and journalists who were on the beat then. What was it like for you in the family, but also you as an individual to have your father in politics, but you go into media, which in some ways is a direct contradiction or indirect conflict with the politicians in our world?
1: Yeah, and it's another example, I guess, of how supportive Dad was because I know that initially he was like, really? Like, do you really want to do that? But then could see that I was so passionate about it and would try to help open doors as he did when he introduced me to Richard Carlton, who was at the ABC at the time and before he went on to 60 Minutes. And so he was very encouraging. We, Dad and I used to argue a lot about stuff and, you know, we argued about stuff until the day he died, really, but he argued in a terrific way of debating and going over issues and trying to understand how each of us felt. But look, to be honest, my family have been nothing but incredibly supportive of me going into journalism, and you know, they're really proud, and it's lovely to have that support.
0: Journalism is one of those careers that a lot of young people aspire to because it looks glamorous and exciting and every day is different. And a lot of that is true, but there's a lot of unglamorous parts of being a reporter as well. And one of them is that you have to go to the scene or the aftermath of some pretty horrible realities that people have lived through. How do you approach a situation like that when you are having to interview people about very fresh trauma and ask them to open up to you. How do you protect them, protect yourself and also get a good story?
1: Well, I do it a whole lot differently now than I did when I was younger because I've learned a lot more, thankfully, because of my connection with the DART Centre for Journalism and Trauma, which is all about trying to make us better human beings in the media and to not leave more damage on damaged people. So, to interview someone who has been traumatised, I would go, I would think through some things. Do they have a support person with them? Are they choosing the place where the interview can happen to make them feel empowered? There's some pretty basic stuff that you do now, which I didn't even really understand or know about previously, But when it comes to, say, a big event like a terrorist attack or an earthquake or a fire, you just go and you switch off that part of your brain that is processing things and you try to keep it switched off for a bit because otherwise you wouldn't be able to do the job, quite frankly. It's later that when you start processing, which is why writing this memoir ended up being so important for me because, I was in lockdown in Melbourne and suddenly I was by myself and my life had stopped. I wasn't jumping on planes. I wasn't racing around everywhere as I normally do at a million miles an hour. Everything was still and I was able to start thinking about some of the things that I had covered and how they might have affected me over the years, because it's accumulative once you're dealing with that, once you go once to an earthquake, twice to an earthquake, a school shooting, you know, you name it, like it does add up. But as far as when I'm going in to approach people, I do think about what if this was my family? What if this was my mother who'd learned that her daughter had died? I try to be gentle. I try to be empathetic. And if they say no, then I don't push it. You know, I don't push it. Like people, when they're traumatised, are in very vulnerable states and you've got to look after them. It's part of our job.
2: Reading your memoir, when you started to recount the terrorist attacks and school massacres that you have reported on directly after the events took place, it was... It was hard to read. And then after a little while, I realized, oh my God, you're still telling me about this because you did do it so many times because that is the role of a reporter. You keep going back and you keep telling the world what has happened. You keep witnessing. And I found myself just as a reader, reading a few chapters thinking, oh my God, this is a lot. And I'm sharing that with you because you did it. I just had a few hours of reading and I wanted to ask you not just how you did it and the emotional toll but also about the incredible things that happened to you while you were doing it. So you were witnessing history. You saw the aftermath of the Sandy Hook School massacre. You saw what happened in Paris and London in the terror attacks of 2017. And yet you were being called up on public media for what you were wearing. Like terrible, vacant things like that
1: that were all crashing together for you at the same time crazy, isn't it? But, you know, there are things that I have covered that didn't even make it into the book. And yet they were incredible parts of history. In 2003, the Columbia Space Shuttle crashed and seven astronauts died. I was in Houston. I covered that. And yet I'd I'd almost forgotten about it. Like there's just been so much. But then when after the Brexit vote in 2016, and the very next day after that, David Cameron came out at number 10 Downing Street to resign. And I had my colleague, a producer, with me. And I she was young, she was from Tasmania. And I remember turning to her and saying, we're about to watch a British Prime Minister resign, save at this moment. You know, this is history you are witnessing. And that is part of what has driven me over the years as well, that I had this urge always to be overseas and I couldn't ever really understand what that urge was about. And I went to a speech in Washington and David Malouf, the writer, was there delivering the speech. And he said these lines that just went off like a bomb in my head because they suddenly made everything make sense. And he said, the thing about being Australian is that history happens while you're asleep. And all of a sudden it came back that I'd be turning on the radio news in the morning in Australia and you would hear about leaders who had died, events that occurred, wars that had been started, and it had all happened while we'd been asleep. And I really had this intense urge to be there while history was happening. So even when some of that history was really unpalatable and difficult, I still clung on to that sense that I was so privileged to be here when history was happening. Some of it was fantastic. The wedding of Harry and Meghan. I wouldn't give that up for a second. I mean, you know, people were critical of saying, oh, why are we spending so much time coverage on them? But I don't think they understood what the UK had gone through with Brexit and with the terrorist attacks and everyone was so grim that suddenly there was a reason to party. And I was there right near the church. I went in to check out the flowers in the morning. I walked up the aisle where Megan was going to walk later that day. Like it was just one of those moments where you pinch yourself. It was like when I was in Cuba and I met Fidel Castro and we got this interview with Fidel Castro. And I literally walked away from that and I said to the crew, did we just interview Fidel Castro? <laughs> like, I do honestly, I haven't such curiosity about the world and I have such a. a oh, I, I love being where history is made. And yes, it is tough sometimes, but you've got to deal with the tough if you're going to enjoy the wonderful moments as well.
0: Lisa, you've had a big job change in the more recent past. You've gone from being that reporter in the field to being the host in the studio at ABC News Breakfast. And I imagine what's come with that is more, people knowing who you are, right? Because a lot of us, when we're watching reporters on the news, we're so focused on the story they're telling, we don't think that much about the reporter. Whereas now being the host of ABC News Breakfast, I'm sure you get a lot more attention on you as well as the stories you're telling. How do you deal with that?
1: Some of it is great. Most of it is great because the viewers see ABC News Breakfast as a family and we are joining them at a very intimate time in the morning when they're still in their pyjamas, having their breakfast cereal sitting around watching it. And so I don't ever take that for granted. I find it funny that people will message me and think of me as someone that they know really well and it's like, well, do I know you? In fact, someone walked past me the other day and just waved and said, good to see you, Lisa. And I thought, oh, no, no. Is it someone that I know? And I realised, no, I didn't know them, but they know me. So most of it's been great. Look, I probably wasn't prepared for the toxicity on social media that I would attract. And some days that is water off a duck's back. Other days I let it get to me. I try not to because I'm constantly trying to help. Others also deal with that kind of toxicity. But if I had an answer for that, because I like being on social media, there's a lot of great stuff about social media, so that's probably the other thing. But it's just lots of fun. Besides the fact that we're getting up at 3 o'clock in the morning, we have so many giggles and laughs behind the scene. It is such a lovely group of people to be working with that I'm enjoying it. And whenever I'm sitting there doing a live cross with... A reporter who is somewhere around the world in a difficult situation I feel for them I know exactly what they're going through I know they haven't slept I know they're under high stress but I also think I'm so glad it's not me and that is a really comforting feeling to be honest to know that I'm okay I'm okay being back in Australia it was 12 years all up that I was overseas and I wouldn't have taken one single day off that, but I'm so glad to be home.
0: Lisa, your book cover promises to be about facing fear and finding joy, and I did find it an utterly joyful read. I was there with you in the panic and the sadness and the destruction, but in the end, it was a joyful read. Thank you so much for sharing with us on Anonymous Was A Woman.
1: Thank you for your interest.
0: that's it for today's show thank you for listening to myself to astrid and of course to our wonderful guest lisa miller you can buy daring to fly online at booktopia now or wherever you get your books A huge thank you to Hachette Publishing for sponsoring this episode and making it possible for us to speak with Lisa. Thanks to Future Women and Bad Producer Productions for getting behind the little podcast that could. If you want to make sure that you never miss an episode, then you should subscribe or follow us wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, why not leave us a sneaky little five-star review and that will make sure you never miss an episode. Bye.